You could do anything except destroy life or property. Like Rhodesia, it was a land of the greatest personal liberty, yet the strictest observance of law. Frederick Russell Burnham describing Dawson City, the Yukon, 1898. The Rhodesia dream had turned on Fred and Blanche Burnham. Their two-year-old daughter had died under the hardships of the Matabili Rebellion, plunging Blanche into a trough of depression and sending Fred into a frenzy of work, which is how he typically coped with sorrow. The investments the family had made in the new country were reasonably profitable, but they were far from making the family rich. Fortunately for Burnham, a new El Dorado beckoned. In 1896, a prospector named George Carmack and his native Tagish brother-in-law known as Skookum Jim discovered gold in quantity on Rabbit Creek off the Klondike River in the wilds of the Yukon Territory in northwest Canada. Rabbit Creek was renamed Bonanza Creek and the word filtered out to the world, Yukon Gold. The news hit San Francisco and Seattle in July of 1897 it triggered a frenzy the likes of which has seldom been seen in human history even in the days of 49. It was a north to Alaska the rush is on. That was a siren's call that Frederick Russell Burnham could not possibly ignore not that he tried to resist it. His brother-in-law Pete Ingram caught the fever first and he bolted from Rhodesia for the Yukon, and in a flash, the whole Burnham tribe's dreams of Africa turned into dreams of the frozen north. Burnham and Blanche's brothers, John and Judd, left Rhodesia and returned to the home base in Pasadena, and Blanche had to stay there because she was pregnant. The men headed north. Many and probably most of the Klondike Stampeders were inexperienced in wilderness travel, clueless about prospecting, and operating on a shoestring. And the Burnham clan was none of those things. While Burnham's experience was all in the desert and on the veld, he knew how to adapt and had the constitution to handle harsh conditions. He knew prospecting and geology, and perhaps most important in all of these circumstances, he was pretty well capitalized. He had funds of his own, and he put together a syndicate uh, from his Rhodesia connections to fund operations. The Burnham party wasn't looking simply to pan nuggets up out of a stream. They had ambitions of, of developing mines, as they'd been developed in South Africa. Newcomers to the territory who had yet to survive a winter were called Chichacos, and Burnham was a very well capitalized Chichaco, but not a tenderfoot. The route to the Klondike goldfields was to haul over Chilkoot or White Pass, the latter of which required pack animals, and that was no problem for Burnham because he had experience, so that's the route he took. Burnham's biographer Steve Kemper writes, Burnham's group, all accomplished horsemen, took pack animals 45 miles over White Pass. Some men who had money but no experience with pack animals also took this route. The trail sometimes narrowed to two feet wide. 
Poorly packed horses bumped the cliff wall and tumbled onto the rocks below. The narrowness caused bottlenecks and long pauses during which thoughtless men left their horses standing, fully loaded. Many collapsed from exhaustion or from sores rubbed by excessive or imbalanced loads. In spring and summer, overburdened horses sank up to their tails in the route's bogs, and no amount of whipping could budge them. The living walked across dead and dying horses whose bones littered the entire route, most notoriously at Dead Horse Gulch. The Northwest Mounted Police estimated that White Pass became a graveyard for at least 3,000 horses and mules during the rush. Burnham, meticulous about his mounts, must have been disgusted. Once over the pass, men built watercraft boats, um, you know, some of them were just kind of glorified rafts, to float down the Yukon River once the ice broke up, landing in the gold rush boom town of Dawson City where the gold fields could be found. And Dawson may have been the boomingest boom town in frontier history. In 1896, there were 500 people there. In 1898, 30,000 or more people populated tents and shanties and boats that uh, were just situated on the river and all over the hills and bogs of, of Dawson. To make room for this stampede, Canadian authorities had cleared out the indigenous Han people, pushing them onto a res uh, reservation downstream from Dawson, and many of them died. In the typical astonishing manner of frontier boom towns, Dawson quickly developed a whole lot of swank. And uh, again, Kemper captures the atmosphere. Burnham had seen it all before. The place was another boom town, half built, half crazy, electric with dreams, hazardous with sharks. On the main streets, saloons, dance halls, and gambling houses stood shoulder to shoulder. Some were simple tents with a bar of rough boards and whiskey to match. A few finer establishments had wooden walls and charged admission, 50 cents or a dollar, which entitled the customer to one drink or one cigar. Burnham knew one of Dawson's most striking entrepreneurs, Belinda Mulrooney. She had arrived in 1897 and quickly opened a restaurant, then a roadhouse in the gold fields. In the summer of 1898, she opened the town's swankiest hotel, the Fairview, offering 30 rooms with carpeting, wallpaper, lace curtains, and electricity. Mulrooney aside, many of Dawson's women earned their money in the usual boomtown professions, from entertainers to high-priced courtesans to crib hookers. Some of their pungent names survive. Spanish Dolores, Lime Juice Lil, Diamond Tooth Gertie. Somewhere in between were the hostesses and dance hall tootsies who made about $120 a week with bonuses for persuading customers to buy champagne at $60 a bottle. All were experts at trimming a flush miner or gambler. Some wore belts made of gold nuggets, tips from their admirers. Bar tabs were paid in pinches of gold dust. Barmen kept their hands moist and their fingernails long, and after extracting payment from a miner's poke, ran their hands through their hair, which could be washed out and panned later. They were also adroit at spilling a few flakes on or behind the bar, a dividend they could wipe up. So think Deadwood or Tombstone, only colder and actually quite a lot richer, at least initially, and uh, a whole lot less violent. Dawson City was, uh, was nowhere near as violent as 
boom towns, mining towns were in the United States. The Canadian Mounted Police, Northwest Mounted Police, did a really good job of allowing the, the town to roar as long as it was just rowdiness. And uh, then they drew a real hard line at, at property crime and violence. So uh, as Burnham said in that quote uh, at the top of the podcast, you were pretty much free to do whatever you wanted as long as you didn't cross that, that line into criminal and violent behavior. So pretty wild place, but uh, very exciting and, and, uh, and full of dreams. Those dreams mostly didn't pan out, so to speak. Like most gold rushes, the Klondike was a bust for most of the Stampeders. The gold was there, but it wasn't just lying around to be picked up or or panned out of streams. And as always, the early arrivers staked out the best claims. The only way to get in on those was to buy in, which required capital. Um, Burnham had some of that, and, and the Burnham Blick team bought a proved up claim that produced paying quantities of gold. Typically of, of Fred, he didn't stick around too long. He took gold from the claim and left the Blick brothers to continue to work the claim while he headed out of the country and sailed all the way to London to persuade members of his syndicate to invest in hauling in some heavy equipment like dredgers and steam-powered diggers to seriously develop and exploit that claim and others. Um, he also hoped to you know, exploit some of the the mining industry and capitalist connections that he'd developed in Rhodesia to attract some new investors to the game. Um, actually, Burnham brought the, the first Klondike gold scene in England, and he got a chance to pitch the Rothschild banking family on the investment, but they passed because it was considered to be too risky, very remote, um, no infrastructure, etc., short season for for work, all of those things uh, made the, the Rothschilds and others shy away. So, as usual, Burnham's King Solomon's Mines were a tantalizing dream just beyond the reach of his fingertips. Fred sailed from London back to California and took a minute in Pasadena and actually met his brand new son, Bruce, And uh, once again, this frontier pioneer family left their infant child with family members and Blanche trekked north with Fred to check out Skagway, Alaska, where Fred was thinking about settling down and making a, a home base. And there something happened that, uh, that almost never happened. Burnham fell sick, seriously. Um, can't get out of bed, kind of sick. The ailment that he was suffering from was undetermined, um, but severe. And Blanche nursed him for a bit, but she couldn't stay. She had to get back to, to Pasadena and Bruce. And so Fred was left alone in Skagway to recover and get fit for another trek over White Pass and down the river to Dawson. And, uh, the effects of loneliness and, and, and illness and more than anything, this sort of sense of horror at the, the possibility that 
this constitution that he'd always relied on was breaking down, plunged the usually ridiculously optimistic Frederick Russell Burnham into a dark place. He was actually depressed, and it shows in letters that he wrote to Blanche. And uh, after the horrors of Rhodesia, it seems that, that Burnham recognized that he was maybe asking too much of his wife, who had lost a child and endured loneliness and basically failed dreams for more than a decade. And he feared that his compulsions to continue to high off into the wilderness in search of a fortune could ultimately cost him her love. And that was an outcome that filled him with profound dread. That dread is revealed in a letter that Fred wrote to Blanche from Alaska. It seems an age already since I last held you in my arms. What in the world it will seem six months hence, I don't know. I am getting better, but very slowly and sometimes feel blue. I have such a dread of physical breakdown. I fear the Klondike will not turn out well, so I will lose my money and my strength. But the worst bridge I cross is that with a physical break will give way that iron will and determination, and in its place a soft and vacillating nature will rule. And if it does, with the violent evils and passions with which I am loaded, I will surely do something that you will despise, so the end of all will be. Son money, son strength of body and mind, and worst of all, son your love and high respect. Pity will not take its place, nor love of former perfections. The memory of every day from the time you arrived in Tacoma to the day you sailed on the cottage city will be with me till I die. In fact, that is what made me build the third bridge, because such perfect confidence and love cannot last forever, according to everything taught or read. So I have figured how it would be destroyed by some act of my own, which, after all, is the only way deep sorrow can ever come. The evils done us hurt, but soon heal. It is the evils that we do that make open wounds forever. I send Roderick a long letter. I hope he will understand the spirit in which it is written, for I do not confess sins to many, and never without deep purpose and reason. Tis generally best to bury them deeply. Yours with love forever, Fred. Now that's obviously a pretty heavy and pretty dark letter, and appears to be uncharacteristic of Frederick Russell Burnham, but I tend to think that men of, of his level of intensity carry around that kind of darkness in them, and there's kind of a constant struggle to prevent that darkness from prevailing and, and rising to the forefront of their personality, um, especially men who have, uh, as Burnham put it, a tendency towards evil and violence. And uh, I think that was a very interesting and, and revealing moment in his life, and sort of like the, the moment that he described in Arizona where he, he had to make a choice between turning outlaw and, and trying to, to stay on the, the straight and narrow. 
And it was really his love for Blanche that kept him from sort of tilting over into the dark side. At, at any rate, Burnham recovered from whatever had ailed him, and as his strength came back, his spirits came back too, and pretty soon he was back on a winter track, uh, winter trek back to Dawson, which was a, a very dangerous expedition, which he pretty much, um, in Burnham fashion, took in stride. He learned very quickly how to work a dog team, and his dogs were St. Bernard's, and he made it safely back to the syndicate's claims. The claims were not a bonanza for the Burnham Syndicate, but they weren't a bust either, sort of like the work in, in Rhodesia. He was doing well, but not spectacularly, sort of like he'd done in Rhodesia. Ironically, at this time, some of that Rhodesia work actually paid off. The company that had funded his exploration for copper north of the Zambezi River had seen its stock climb sharply in value, um, and his agent, who was um, uh, based in, in London, uh, had been given a standing sell order, so he sold shares to the tune of, of $15,000, which is close to a half million in today's dollars. So that left Fred more flush than he'd, he'd ever been before. And uh, he decided that he was going to, uh, to make a real play in the Great White North and decided to buy some real estate in Skagway and move Blanche and her entire family there. She came willingly. She was always that plucky pioneer wife. And uh, she hoped that they might actually settle down in Skagway. And uh, Burnham bought her sister, who was coming out of a bad marriage, a store to operate. And, uh, and he and his wife lived in uh, a home that, that Blanche rather proudly noted was the first plastered house in Skagway. Well, by this point in the saga of Frederick Russell Burnham, you can guess what happens next. In October of 1899, the Boer republics in South Africa declared war on the British Empire. They were hoping to stave off a slow takeover of, of their country, flooded by Ootlanders who had come in to, to work the gold mines there. In the opening days of the war, these hardened frontier fighters who were mobile and very well armed with Mauser rifles and, and German-made Krupp artillery just savagely mauled the British army in a series of battles uh, fought over the space of what they called the Black Week and it just shocked the empire and the whole world and uh, Field Marshal Frederick Lord Roberts took command and set about trying to recover from these ignominious defeats at the hands of a bunch of farmers. And he believed that one key to recovery of the British position and then victory in the war was good intelligence. And for that, he needed talented scouts. And Major General Frederick Carrington had someone in mind, someone who had carried out 
difficult and dangerous missions for him in the Matabili Rebellion of 1896. And this fellow was understood to be off in Alaska prospecting for gold or some such thing. So Lord Roberts, this is the commander-in-chief of British military forces in South Africa, sent a cablegram to Burnham's last known location, and it arrived in Skagway on the steamer City of Seattle on January 4th, 1900. And the cablegram offered Frederick Russell Burnham a commission on Lord Roberts' staff as Chief of Scouts. At that message, Burnham would write later, all the gold of the Klondike was no more to me than the frozen monsters whose tombs we had thawed to obtain it. Within an hour, I was on my way to Africa. The Boers, who were mostly descended from Dutch settlers of the Cape of South Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, were a tough and resilient frontier people, one of the great frontier tribes of history. They were farmers and ranchers and hunters, born to the rifle, born to the saddle, and uh, that rural Boer population was probably the best natural material for a mounted guerrilla war in the world at the time. And uh, even town Boers were, were well-versed in, in Veldcraft. They were also very well armed, as I mentioned, uh, as the tensions between the, the Boer republics, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State and the British Empire grew through the 1890s. The governments of the republics invested in Mauser rifles and Krupp artillery and uh, consequently in the early actions of the war they in Rudyard Kipling's famous phrase gave the British no end of a lesson. Burnham had gone to school with these Boer trekkers and hunters during his stint in Rhodesia and his Veldcraft was on a par with theirs. So he was well-suited for the role. Lord Roberts used him to gather intelligence on the, the Boer commandos. That was the, um, the name that they used to describe their, uh, their units. Um, each community would field what they called a commando. Um, so Roberts used Burnham for intelligence gathering and also to lead expeditions to blow rail lines, which were the Boers and everybody's primary means of moving material of war and uh, especially artillery. And Burnham found, as one would expect, tremendous zest in this work and took a great deal of, of professional pride in his ability to outwit these ace guerrilla fighters. Although I have to say, you know, at this point, the war had not devolved into the guerrilla war that it became later in the uh, in the conflict. The first part of the war was uh, more or less a, a conventional fight with uh, the Boers in large forces, um, mostly taking entrenched positions and uh, drawing the British onto them where they, they mowed them down with uh, 
with Mauser fire. But uh, regardless, the the uh, the Boers were their main tactical strengths were their mobility and their their veldcraft, and uh, so Burnham was matching wits with what amounted to a um, kind of elite force. He wasn't always successful. Um, one entire chapter of his his memoir, Scouting on Two Continents, is devoted to describing a repeated failure to penetrate a screen of Boer patrols to gather intelligence on their stronghold in Petersburg. And con- contrary to the, the folks that we, uh, we talked about in part two of the podcast who despised Burnham as a, a blowhard and a braggart and a phony and all those sorts of things, Burnham really emphasized um, the contingencies that were involved in in scouting and the realization that uh, that you weren't always going to be successful. And in later years, he told Robert Baden Powell, who uh, founded the Boy Scout movement, um, that one of the most important skills that a scout has to develop is is the willingness to admit to his commanding officer when he's failed. Um, as Kemper notes, it's tempting, wrote Burnham, to whitewash failures and substitute assumptions for facts. But if a commander bases a decision on faulty information, men may die. Better to tell the truth, wrote Burnham, even when it reflects poorly on oneself. Such honesty will earn the commander's trust, so that if he ever gets conflicting information from several scouts or insistent experts, he will confidently act upon the intelligence of the scout he trusts most. And, uh, you know, that's a, a lesson that continues to be utterly valid for any intelligence officer in any capacity in the 21st century. And far from bragging, um, Burnham's accounts of his work in, in South Africa, um, not only do they, they uh, acknowledge failures, um, there is one incident that uh, I've always kind of gotten a kick out of in which uh, he gave way to a, uh, I guess, an old Arizona rustler's impulse and, uh, and got read the riot act by his commander for it. Um, I think that, that it's safe to say that uh, a lot of, of scout personalities or uh, operator temperaments have more than just a little bit of the bandit in them. And, uh, and in, Rus- in Burnham's case, uh, he kind of enjoyed playing rustler, rounding up Boer cattle. And uh, he was, you know, th- and this was a legitimate act of war. This was a, a way of attacking the enemy's commissary. But... Uh, his commander took kind of a dim view of, of Burnham's zest for cattle stealing operations. And, uh, when he returned from one of them, uh, one of these expeditions, Lord Roberts called him into his command tent and dressed him down for taking his eye off the primary mission and, and basically indulging in pranks. And, uh, Roberts was was correct, and Burnham acknowledges this. Burnham's value was in the intelligence that he could gather, 
and uh, bringing in information on enemy numbers and where they were concentrated, where they were moving, and risking capture or death to rustle some cattle was, in Robert's view, Lord Robert's view, a uh, it was like dereliction of duty, and uh, and Burnham recognized that this was in fact the case and uh, was chagrined and vowed that from then on he would concentrate on his duty, which did not mean that he couldn't have any fun. Um, you know, once again, I think that it's probably safe to say that one of the great attractions of, of, uh, of special operations is the opportunity to blow shit up, and that became one of Burnham's primary duties. Uh, it very much resembles the work that T.E. Lawrence would do a little over 10 years down the line in, uh, in Arabia, uh, blowing up railroad trains to disrupt the enemy's rail network. Um, Lord Roberts was engaged at this time primarily against the, the forces led by uh, Christian DeVette, who was perhaps the best, one of, certainly, and perhaps the best of the Boer generals. So one of Lord Roberts' key strategic considerations, and therefore one of Burnham's key missions, was to prevent Devet from evacuating artillery from Johannesburg as the British forces bore down on the city, which is in the, the veld of the Transvaal. And Lord Roberts tasked Burnham with blowing the line. So he put together a team of eight sappers and royal engineers, which was commanded by Major Almire Hunter Weston, a great British military name, and uh, they had to be infiltrated into enemy territory. So the plan was to take 50 cavalrymen and punch through the Boer pickets at night, leaving the, sabot the sabotage team behind while the cavalry fought their way out, and then the sabotage team would, would later make their way out. The Royal Inskilling's Fusiliers charged the Boer pickets with sabers, which Burnham loved, and the team made it through. And they dodged outposts and patrols to the tune of 15 miles into enemy territory and picked up a few prisoners along the way. The spot where they had chosen to blow the line was occupied by an entire Boer commando. So Burnham and Hunter Weston decided just the two of them stood a better chance of setting their charges and escaping. So they crept through this sleeping encampment of Boers um, in the hours before dawn. This is how Burnham described it. By very cautious movements, we finally reached the railroad and adjusted the charge of gun cotton. I covered the fuse with my hat while Hunter Weston lighted it. We crept away. Soon there was a trembling of the ground and a roar that sent the sleeping Boers running to their horses in all directions. In the confusion... We reached our command and rode quietly away. The Boers picked up the trail, though, and the chase was on, and a Boer sharpshooter wounded one of the men and dropped a horse. Hunter Weston dismounted, and uh, there was a little uh, shooting match between Boer and Brit at a range of about 300 yards, 
and uh, Hunter Weston hit his mark and, and put uh, his Boer opponent down on the Veld. Burnham wrote, We had other adventures and did not reach the British lines until 11 in the morning. We had been in the enemy's country since 6 of the evening before. We had ridden more than 50 miles, lost one man wounded and one horse killed, had blown up the railroad, cut telegraph wires, captured seven prisoners and four horses, and gained a lot of important information. This happened to be my 39th birthday, so we called it a party. This kind of, of activity is very analogous to the kind of special operations work that would go on through the 20th century and into the 21st. And, uh, and Burnham obviously relished it, and he was good at it and enjoyed it. Um, but it was very dangerous work. And once again, his, his wife was too astute to believe him when he wrote to her that he was barely in danger. Blanche was wise enough not to burden her husband in a combat zone with her anxieties and the strain that this was putting her under. But uh, she did write to Burnham's mother, I had the blues so deeply tinged that it amounted to a genuine black agony. I could not help it. I felt so discouraged. Usually I try to keep in good spirits for the boy's sake, for where Mama is blue, life is not very cheerful, and I must think of my boys. So, once again, we see the impact of, of Burnham's compulsions on the wife that he, he loved very deeply and, and truly, and uh, he really was kind of, of pushing the, the boundaries of her ability to take it. Um, and again, that's something that uh, I think is a little bit underreported, but definitely very true of special operators who were repeatedly deployed through the global war on terror, for instance. Um, it places a tremendous burden on the home life, and the family who are fighting battles of their own, even though it's not combat. So in one instance, um, Burnham was actually captured by the Boers um, when a uh, commando raided a British supply column at Sana's post, and uh, he was able to sort of talk his way out of it. A um, One of the Boers approached him and recognized him, having seen him and known him in Rhodesia, and said so. He said, you know, you're, you're the American scout Burnham. And, uh, and Fred said, oh, no, no, you've mistaken me for, for someone else. And uh, the reason he was able to talk his way out of it, they, they brought forward a, a Boer intelligence officer to interrogate him. And... Uh, so powerful was the image created by Dime Novels and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show that Burnham, because he was able to talk about books and, and geology and all sorts of whatever he could, he could pull out of his uh, rather high level of erudition, it just didn't square with the Boer's idea of what an American scout should look and sound like. So 
he got away with it. He he was able to persuade them that that uh, he wasn't Frederick Russell Burnham, although they still were a little bit suspicious about uh, that that maybe there was more to this guy than met the eye. So they had a uh, one of their their black servants kind of keep an eye on him, but uh, Burnham was able to to lull him into complacency and and actually make a getaway. Um, so that was a close call. And then uh, pretty soon after that, he uh, he had a situation that uh, would end his war. He uh, went out on another rail line blowing expedition and was seriously injured when a, a Boer marksman spotted him, shot his horse, and the horse went down and, and rolled on, on Burnham, which caused serious injuries to his abdominal wall and to his ribs. Um, that's about the worst thing that can can happen is to have a, a horse roll on you like that. And Burnham didn't really go into a whole lot of detail about the nature of his injuries. Um, that's kind of the sort of thing that uh, he didn't talk about because as he'd mentioned in that letter to Blanche, he had this horror of physical incapacity. Um, but it, it was serious. He was, he was badly hurt and, uh, and barely made it back to British lines and, uh, you know, came close as, as, as Burnham was capable of coming to despairing. Um, he was reduced to, to crawling and in considerable pain. Um, at any rate, that episode ended his war and he was invalided back to England and, uh, he was he was quite famous because of these exploits. This was a a uh, a war that was followed very closely by the media, and uh, his exploits were were well known in England. And he was actually awarded the Distinguished Service Order for his efforts on behalf of his adopted queen and and country. And uh, you know again. I hate to keep bringing up Burnham's detractors, but uh, but it seems necessary to point out that uh, that the British government didn't hand out dis- distinguished service orders like uh, you know like tickets to a, a movie theater. This was a serious a serious award and uh, indicates the very high esteem that the British military command held him in. The end of the Boer War for Burnham marked the end of warfare for Burnham. He would not go to war again. That was the end of his career as a frontier partisan warrior. But it was far from the end of Burnham's career as an adventurer. The early part of the 20th century had him caroming from project to project, it was always built around exploration and prospecting for mineral resources, uh, usually on behalf of syndicates of investors. And he worked in East Africa and West Africa, and for a while he had his sights set on an expedition into the interior of China, but that one kind of faded off. And uh, in 1905... The Burnham family was in London while Fred sought financing for a variety of his 
possible ventures. And on October 1st of that year, another unspeakable tragedy struck the family. Young Bruce, who was his father's son, obviously, ditched his nurse to go exploring along the banks of the Thames, and he went missing. The family searched frantically for him overnight and uh, found his body the next morning floating in the river, and he had drowned. Burnham's friend, the writer H. Ryder Haggard, the author of King Solomon's Mines, recalled that when Burnham saw his son's lifeless body, quote, he fell to the ground senseless as though he'd been shot. I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around what that must have done to both Fred and to Blanche. They'd lost two young children. Now, that was a more common thing even in the early part of the 20th century by far than it is now. But uh, we shouldn't minimize the tremendous psychological impact that those kinds of losses carried. And once again, Blanche, without many outlets for, for grief, fell into a state of depression. And Burnham, characteristically, threw himself into work. And at this point, his sights turned to Mexico. Burnham had be- become close with, uh, not, not yet really close friends, but associates with uh, John Hayes Hammond, who was probably the preeminent mining engineer of the age. Hammond had worked with uh, Cecil Rhodes in South Africa and actually given Rhodes uh, an honest though disappointing assessment of Rhodesia's mineral riches, um, which Rhodes, to his credit, uh, didn't try to cover up. He accepted it and, uh, and sort of shifted his expectations for what was possible there, and it became more oriented towards becoming an agricultural colony than, than the next big gold strike. Um, South African social historian Christopher Van Onselen, who's of a Marxist bent, um, wrote a very dense and very rich biography of Hammond titled The Cowboy Capitalist. Um, Onselen hates John Hayes Hammond, and he portrayed this mining engineer as a kind of, of spider at the center of a web of capitalist conspiracies to overthrow governments and exploit mineral wealth across the globe, which is one way of looking at it and not untrue. Um, It's limited. Um, Hammond, I think, was a better man than Van Onselen portrays him. But uh, at any rate, he was a mining engineer, but he was kind of a prospector at heart, really. And uh, he was rich and very well connected because, you know, the spider web and all of that. And he backed Burnham in exploring in northern Mexico on behalf of a syndicate called Guggenheim Exploration. And that's Guggenheim as in Guggenheim Museum. Like I said, he was very well connected. And at that point, they were primarily uh, looking for copper deposits. 
And uh, Burnham's fear of losing his wife's love kind of reared its head again. Blanche was living in Pasadena, California, and she was in a bad way. She was not doing well. Um, her husband was often in a foreign wilderness, engaged in work that he, he loved. She was at home uh, with little to do other than, I'm sure, work her mind through all of the what-ifs and if-onlys um, involved in the death of two of her children in the past decade. Um, she wrote a letter to her sister telling her that she couldn't stop crying. It seems as though two tragedies and three wars were enough for any poor woman to bear, she wrote. Um, nowadays, of course, we would would recognize the level of depression that she was going through, but uh, um, you know, at that time, it was uh, it was the blues, and you were expected uh, pretty much to go through it on your own. She stopped responding to Fred's letters, and for a couple that wrote as frequently as they did, this created a tremendous sense of anxiety in him. Um, the correspondence gradually resumed. Um, it's not clear whether she just didn't write because she was essentially crying all the time and didn't have the energy to do it, or if she was feeling a, a certain level of bitterness towards Fred. We don't know that. Um, we can surmise, um, but there is no evidence one way or the other. She did eventually start writing again, but his anxiety remained, and it's evident in his letters to her. Burnham loved his wife ardently, and after more than 20 years of marriage, he expressed a, a continuing deep physical passion for her, and his longing is evident in his letters, even though it's kind of couched in a sort of, of jocular tone, where he talks about her... Um, essentially starting to work out with, uh, with their son Roderick's girlfriend and future wife, Isabel Hera. There are very many kisses long overdue, and the worst of it is that I feel they cannot all be made up. It would wear you out. Though as you are going in for ath athletics with Isabel, it might be done. It would be quite a while before the couple could engage in any athletics because Burnham was bouncing all over Mexico trying to get capitalists to commit to mining projects. At this time period, American mining and ranching interests in particular had poured huge amounts of capital into Mexico. This was from the 1880s on. Uh, Porfirio Diaz, the president, who was really the dictator of Mexico, was trying to rapidly force modernization on his country, um, which brought significant benefits, but also a, a tremendous uh, level of inequity. Um, they were uh, pushing peasants and native peoples off of their land, and uh, land that, that they had, had worked agriculturally sometimes for centuries, and uh, turning them over to wealthy hacienda owners. Um, and uh, sometimes those wealthy hacienda owners were, in fact, American interests. And 
this was creating a lot of unrest in the country, and uh, that was growing as uh, the 20th century got underway. And there was also a lot of global economic instability. And so investors were starting to kind of pull back a little bit from risky endeavors out in the, the mountains and the deserts and the jungles. An old story for Frederick Russell Burnham. And, and so he had fortune in sight, but always just beyond his grasp. In 1908... Burnham and Hammond turned their interest towards developing an agricultural community in Sonora, Mexico, on the Yaqui River. Uh, essentially, it was an irrigation project, a massive irrigation project. Uh, Porfirio Diaz had brutally cleared the land of most of its Yaqui inhabitants, um, it was an ethnic cleansing campaign. There were many ethnic cleansing campaigns through the late part of the 19th century against indigenous populations in, in different parts of Mexico. Um, traditional agriculture wasn't enough for Diaz. He wanted to see modern irrigation and commercial um, market-based agriculture, and men like Burnham and Hammond were the kind of men who could deliver that. So uh, Diaz looked with favor on these kinds of projects. And it was a kind of project that Burnham could totally sink his teeth into. It was a, you know, it was a pioneering effort. It was building up the country, as he put it, the kind of thing that he had once participated in in Rhodesia. As always, Burnham was not unsympathetic to the Yaqui. Um, he admired them. He admired them for their martial prowess and that he considered on a par with the Apaches. Um, their desert living skills. But Burnham was always a Manifest Destiny believer. He saw himself as, as on the cutting edge of a superior Anglo-Saxon civilization. And paradoxically and fascinatingly to me, the fact that he didn't really like the civilization for which he was serving as an outrider very much is... It's just part of the paradoxical nature of the man. Um, he was in it for the pioneering. I think that that's really a true statement. He he believed in the mission, but he did not necessarily care very much for the results. So, at this time, he was he was working with joyful intensity and enjoying his. Um, exploring this this new desert habitat where he felt very much at home. On one of these explorations, he came upon a huge rock that was covered with hieroglyphics. And this came to be known as the Esperanza Stone. Uh, a friend of his named Charles Holder wrote an article about it for Scientific American magazine. Um, I'll post a picture of it on uh, the Frontier Partisans blog to, uh, so you can get an image of, of what this thing, thing looked like. Uh, Burnham thought that the hieroglyphics were Mayan, which is almost certainly not the case. But uh, it was an interesting find and, and, and emblematic of, of some of the thrills that Burnham experienced in, uh, in just riding around the country that he was responsible for developing.
Fred got to indulge in one more piece of uh, of tactical work in uh, a little bit of executive protection in 1909 when American President William Howard Taft was to meet with Porfirio Diaz in El Paso on the border. Um, given the unrest of the times, and this is one year before the Mexican Revolution broke out, um, there was a lot of nervousness about assassination attempts on one or both of them. Um, you also have to remember that uh, that the American President William McKinley had been shot and killed by an anarchist just uh, a few years before, and heads of state all over the world were uh, were subjected to a spate of assassinations and assassination attempts. So um, there was some real nervousness about this uh, this meeting on the border, which was then as now a volatile place. And uh, the Secret Service, the president's security at that time was not uh, was not as robust as it is in modern times. And so uh, a whole cadre of um, of private security forces were mobilized for this visit, uh, put together by uh, Mr. Connected, John Hayes Hammond. And uh, Hammond personally asked Burnham to, to participate in this. And uh, a reporter who was covering the, uh, the meeting um, and had traveled down to El Paso with Taft uh, for the New York World wrote up a piece on uh, on the security arrangements um, that uh, were to greet Taft when he arrived in uh, in El Paso. And uh, the Chief Wilkie that he refers to here is the, the head of the Secret Service. There have been Secret Service men, militia, regulars, cowboys, police, and rangers, and Chief Wilkie is to meet him in El Paso. But with Major Frederick Russell Burnham along, the necessity for Chief Wilkie's presence is not apparent. The Major is so well known along the border that it is said that the fact that he is seen in the crowd will ensure the departure of all troublemakers. There is a superstition down here that he has eyes in the back of his head and that he can produce a gun from the air if necessary. He is the most modest and the quietest blue-eyed, five-foot-four-inch man yet encountered on the presidential tour, though he has the record here and in South Africa of having killed at least 20 men, either in self-defense or in the line of duty as an officer. The visit between Taft and and Diaz did come off without a hitch, um, even though there were more than 100 weapons confiscated from from people in the crowd um, during the event, but uh, it has to be borne in mind that this was actually Texas, and uh, probably most everybody was was packing. Um, Burnham did did see a man loitering around the entrance of a hotel just as Taft and Diaz were arriving, and uh, he and a Texas ranger named Charlie Moore closed in on the guy and, and, and Moore uh, grabbed the man by the arms and Burnham grabbed his wrist and, and uh, they found a, uh, a little pencil gun, which is a little hideout pistol. Um, again, I can post a picture in the, uh, on the blog of what a 
uh, pencil pistol looks like, but they they found it in in the guy's hand, and there's no no valid reason to have a, a pistol like this in your hand. It's like a zip gun kind of thing, um, unless you're you're up to no good. So they confiscated that, and uh, um, they uh, they held the guy for, uh, who who said that he was a reporter. Um, they held the guy until Taft and, and Diaz left town and then cut him loose, which of course, <laughs> that's a little different than what would happen nowadays too. But, uh, at any rate, some folks felt that Burnham had foiled an assassination attempt. He never made that claim. Um, he was just, uh, just doing his duty and, uh, helping out his friend, John Hayes Hammond. So, that was a little uh, a little interlude in his uh, work developing an agricultural colony on the Yaki River, which was going pretty well, and it probably would have have really thrived. Um, everything was lined up for it to to do so, including uh, solid investment. But once again, Burnham's ambitions and hopes of a fortune were kind of overturned by gigantic political and economic events. In 1910, the uh, Mexican Revolution exploded, um, and their patron, Porfirio Diaz, was deposed and exiled. And uh, that didn't end things. I mean, the, a, a new government took over, and... Um, and it looked like they were going to be able to continue the, the Yaqui River project under the, the new government of Francisco Madero. But uh, the unrest didn't, didn't stop. It got much worse. And uh, the Mexican Revolution was really a series of rebellions and civil wars. And it ultimately would kill about a million people and create a huge refugee crisis on the American border, and it completely broke down law and order across vast swaths of Mexico. And warlords like Pascual Orozco and Emiliano Zapata, and perhaps most famously Pancho Villa, would rise and fall. And a, a new cast of, of revolutionary Cadillos would assert their dominance. Um, the Yaqui saw this unrest as an opportunity to attempt to reclaim their lost lands, and by 1911, the uh, colony that, that Burnham was working to develop was under siege. Um, Yaqui were raiding the colony for livestock and, and foodstuffs, wrestling their, their livestock and, and stealing or destroying their crops. And bandits and Indians actually committed some killings. And uh, you have to think that the circumstances reminded Burnham of Rhodesia in 1896. And this time, you know, he wasn't dealing with, with gritty, hardy Rhodesian pioneers. Um, despite the fact that Burnham obtained an exemption to an American arms embargo, and procured rifles and uh, and a couple of machine guns. These settlers did not have the heart to fight for their land, which uh, Burnham found kind of dismaying and disgusting. Um, 
and uh, very disappointing, obviously. And the Mexican government was was no help. Um, they they sent uh, convicts to uh, quote unquote guard the colony. Um, and Burnham wrote, "The bandits and savages are now running everything." So the colony was now falling apart, and Burnham was once again in bad financial straits. He wrote to Blanche. I wish I could get some of my salary, about $10,000 due me now, and nothing in sight but trouble. Still, we are not so bad off as some of our settlers, and should be thankful that we have any cash at all. Love, dear, I will soon be holding you to my heart, and all else is then forgotten and fades into mere nothingness. The Yaki River Project never recovered. Um, if the revolution wasn't bad enough, World War I then broke out in... Europe, the uh, situation in Mexico just kept getting bloodier and more dangerous by the year. And every time they tried to restart the colony, um, violence would would shut it down. And so once again, uh, Burnham just watched the prospects of, of a fortune turn into dust before his eyes. But the Burnhams never quit. As the Nepalese mountaineer Nims Purja says, Giving up is not in the blood, sir. It's not in the blood. The family ranched happily together for once in the Sierra Nevada during the 1920s. And Burnham published his memoir, Scouting on Two Continents, in 1926. And it was in the Roaring Twenties in California that Frederick Russell Burnham finally found his fortune. And ironically, it was right under his feet in his old Southern California stomping grounds. Oil was the new treasure of Solomon, and Burnham became convinced that uh, there was a good pool of the black gold under the Dominguez Hills, which was the site of an old Spanish hacienda uh, just a few miles south of downtown Los Angeles. And this was an area that Burnham had, had ridden over as a, as a kid. By this time, um, Burnham's eldest son, Roderick, had become a geologist and uh, worked for the oil industry, and he concurred with his father's instinct, uh, which was a minority opinion. Most geologists and engineers thought that Every productive site in the Los Angeles area had already been discovered and identified and developed. And uh, even his old friend John Hayes Hammond initially declined to back Burnham in exploration in Dominguez Hills. But uh, Hammond, who, again, you know, was like Burnham, an old prospector at heart, ultimately couldn't resist his, his old buddy, and he came around and he twisted some of his, his well-connected and well-heeled arms to uh, get investors to pony up for some test drilling. And as the song says, up from the ground came the bubbling crude. Barrels and barrels and barrels of the stuff worth millions of dollars. So, Frederick Russell Burnham, after all of this time, was a wealthy man. Burnham's biographer, Steve Kemper, I think, 
writes this beautifully. The circle had closed. After seeking his fortune in rough spots all over the globe, Burnham had found his bonanza at age 64 in the golden place he had galloped over as a boy, dreaming of Africa and adventure. Frederick Russell Burnham would enjoy 20 more years of vigorous life as a rich man. Much of it uh, he devoted to causes of, of wilderness and, and wildlife conservation. Um, there's a mountain in Southern California right next to Mount Baden-Powell, which was named after the founder of the Boy Scouts, a mountain that I climbed countless times when, when uh, we had a cabin in Wrightwood, California. Next to that mountain is, uh, is Mount Burnham, named for Fred. Um, the old scout died in his sleep at the age of 86 in 1947. Blanche had gone first in 1939 at the age of 78. And uh, Burnham had written an appreciation of Blanche back in the 1920s, which is actually quite a lovely epitaph for a very remarkable woman. In boyhood, it was my greatest good fortune to meet a girl who truly believed in me and that I would carry out the wild schemes and plans I confided to her. Fantastic as those dreams were, nearly every one has come true. The vision of all she would be called upon to endure amid appalling circumstances was mercifully hidden from her young eye. Nor could she foresee how tragedy and sorrow would someday test her soul as by fire. Yet throughout all the hard experiences of our years together, no resentment of destiny ever showed in her manner or crossed her lips. A gentle heart, a pleasant voice, a loyal nature, with a wide understanding of life as it is. She has indeed met every situation with supreme courage and continues to be a clear fountain of inspiration to me and to all who know her. What a life, eh? Both of them. Both Fred and Blanche. Their life makes for a quintessential American frontier story. Just boundless optimism in the face of, of extreme hardship, countless setbacks, and, and really profound personal loss. Reminds me a great deal of, of Daniel Boone, in fact. Um who lost two sons and a brother in uh, his efforts to pioneer Kentucky. Frederick Russell Burnham is also kind of quintessentially American in that he's a bundle of paradoxes and, and contradictions. Particularly as a young man, he was attracted to then-current um, socialist ideas of equality and economic justice, that um, you know that cropped up in in an age of of real inequality in the you know as they called it the gilded age, and yet he worked f with and for some of the most significant capitalists, even robber barons of the era. He was a lover of wilderness, happiest when he was out in the back of beyond, um, with a mission, mission being to discover minerals. And he also believed ardently in, in the project of developing and civilizing the wilderness that he loved. And once the civilization developed, he didn't like it very much. And 
continually moved on to, to other boom towns and other frontiers. And then late in life sought to conserve what was left of wild places and wild animals. That was a, a pretty typical, actually, uh, pretty typical course of life for the great hunters of that era, Frederick Courtney Salou being another great example who became very devoted to conservation late in life. Like Daniel Boone, he was a man who was deeply and passionately in love with his wife, but his compulsions drove him to spend most of their marriage apart and put her through terrible anxieties and tragedies. He profoundly respected the martial qualities and bushcraft of his adversaries, from the Apaches to the Matabili and to the Boers. But nevertheless, he was a real true believer in Manifest Destiny, and, uh, and he absolutely bought wholeheartedly into Cecil Rhodes' conviction that the Anglo-Saxon race represented the pinnacle of civilized human achievement. There were always people who did not like Frederick Russell Burnham, as we've seen in some of the accusations thrown up against him during his own lifetime. Um, he's not a well-known figure now, but uh, if he were, he would surely be canceled at the hands of adherents of the, the new faith of, of wokeness. Uh, he would be regarded uh, as a, a white supremacist and completely defined by that, which um, you know, he was. He was a white supremacist. Um, he would have told you that he was. Um, not a virulent, vicious one, but he believed in, in the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race, as I just said. But uh, um, that would be now disqualifying from any, any consideration as the least bit heroic or even as a good man, and I think that that's way off base. Um, I think that he was a hero, and... Uh, a good man, a better man than, than he sometimes feared he might be. Um, personally, I find his contradictory nature and his extraordinary exploits endlessly fascinating. I have since I was, I was young. He embodied so much of the American frontier character, and that, of course, is a mixed bag. Both noble and admirable and highly destructive. Ultimately, though, as in all of these cases, we can take what we need and leave the rest. Burnham embodied qualities that I and many other people admire and value and seek to emulate. We can reject his Anglo-Saxon supremacy and still admire his gumption, his all-American optimism, his physical hardihood and mental discipline, and his courage in the face of all kinds of adversity. The qualities that the American frontiersman, the scout, 
embodied still have great value. And they can best be summed up in Louis L'Amour's highest note of praise. He was a man to ride the river with. Thanks for joining me at this campfire. And thank you to the patrons who continue to support the work of the Frontier Partisans blog and the Frontier Partisans podcast. Our next series is going to jump back more than a century in time to uh, the very end of the French and Indian War when the British Empire had prevailed over France for the final time in, uh, in the contest for North America and took over the interior of North America, the Great Lakes region, and the Ohio Valley and sought to change the rules of the game that had operated there for over a century and uh, and as the British Empire was wont to do they uh, stirred up a hornet's nest and, and created a uh, massive conflict for themselves and that conflict is known today as Pontiac's Rebellion or Pontiac's Uprising or as I prefer to call it Pontiac's War and uh, I was a little over ambitious in my hopes for when the first episode of that would be up uh, that's not going to happen until uh, after the, the turn of the year the holidays are after all upon us and, and we should all be enjoying those but uh, there will be a multi-part series coming here uh, in the first part of 2022 on Pontiac's War and uh, hope you all gather around the campfire again and we'll see you down the trail.